So we're talking about overflow. And I come to believe, by the way, did you appreciate Japheth last week if you were here? Amen, right? He was phenomenal. That was awesome. Um, and I love that text that he talks about um, that comes from chapter 6 of Luke where it says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Because everything is the overflow then. That text is so important. It means that the heart is the place where things originate where love begins to become real, and then it incarnates, right? And that's the word that we use at the time of Christmas. We use the term incarnation to talk about how love became real through the person of Jesus Christ as he showed up as a little baby. This idea of incarnation or enfleshment, love becomes flesh, love becomes real. And you've heard me say this before, Everything incarnates. All that is good, all that is bad, it incarnates. Whatever is in your heart ends up coming out and overflowing from your mouth into the reality of the world that we live in and the experiences and relationships that we have. Everything incarnates. We only talk about incarnation at Christmas because it's particular to the idea of God becoming flesh. But really, everything we love, everything we hate, all that becomes incarnate. And what I love about this is that Jesus is the overflow of God's heart, right? He is the overflow shown up in the flesh. This enfleshment of love, the idea that love is wrapped around with skin and becomes Jesus Christ, that's incredible. And I think it's so well said in a text that we quote all the time, but it's worth quoting again, John 3, 16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. In this respect, we always live in the overflow because Christ literally was the overflow of God. But you can't read John 3.16 without reading John 3.17. I think you're remiss if you do that. John 3.17 gives the purpose for the incarnation. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the the world through him. And the purpose of this sending, the purpose of this incarnation, of this overflow, is to save. It is not to condemn. So I'm going to ask you a question at the beginning of a sermon, and that's not what I normally do. Normally I ask you a question at the end of the sermon, because then you can apply it to your life and you can take it home with you. But I want to ask you a question at the beginning of the sermon today. How does the overflow of what God has done for you incarnate in you? How is it that the incarnation makes itself real? This incarnation of love flows out of you. So I guess the question I'm asking is what's in your heart and how is it coming out of not only your lips, but of your pores, of every relationship, of every interaction that you have? And I know it's early in a sermon to ask this question, but I want you to continue to think about it. How does love become real? Love for God, love for others. How does that become real in your life? What is the incarnation of love in your life? And now, listen, um, it's Christmas time, so there's a really simple answer to that, right? It's gifts, right? That's the incarnation of love. At least that's what I think a lot of people think, that that is partly the incarnation of love. When you get a gift, you're like, you love me. I was talking to my son the other day, and we, you know, we give the money to our kids to buy us gifts. You know how that works. If you're a parent, you're like, yeah, they don't have anything. So, um, and I, I actually said to my son, uh, my, my middle son, Jacob, I said, I don't even think you, you got me a gift last year. And he's like, yes, I did, dad. 
I was like, oh, you did? And he's like, yeah, and it was my money. I was like, really? What was that? And he was like, I went down to Walmart and I bought you a box of Whoppers. <laughs> and I was like, oh, for $1.39? And he's like, yeah, something like that. And I was like, so your love incarnates $1.39 worth in your life. And he's like, dad, it's not the price, it's the thought. <laughs> Which it is, and it's sort of not. <laughs> it's only $1.39. No. <laughs> I felt bad because I had actually forgotten that he got me that, right? So it's easy to think, well, gifts are the way. I mean, what is the give? Let's, let's keep it in those terms, right? What is the give that you give to God and to others, right? What is the give that becomes the overflow of our heart? Now, my wife and I, we, we don't often give gifts to each other. Kind of early on in our marriage, we kind of stopped giving gifts. In fact, when we first got married, I, I was pretty good. She's here in this one, so I got to be a lot more careful than what I said in the last service. Um, no, we, I used to be pretty good at like bringing flowers home, you know, on, on like a Friday afternoon, bringing flowers for the weekend. And after a few years, my wife was like, you know, you don't have to bring me flowers. They just die. <laughs> I didn't want to engage in the conversation of, well, maybe if you took care of them better, because that's not, they were, they were snipped, they were going to die. So, so I said, well, you know, okay. And she's like, why don't you get me an HVAC system for the house? <laughs> right? She's like, I don't need these little ones. We've already given ourselves the greatest gift of all. We've given ourselves to one another. There's a little bit of redundancy in the little gift. So let's make sure like we have what we need to make this house run smoothly. So we don't give those gifts that often, but the idea of giving, what it is that you give, the give that you have for God, the give that you have for others, what is that? And as we think about it this Christmas season, I want to put a few things in front of you that I think make a difference when it comes to the overflow of our heart, when it comes to the idea of how we incarnate. I think one of the most important things that we can give God, especially, is giving worship to God. By giving ourselves to our worship experience, fully present, fully committed, fully invested, we incarnate the words of the songs, the meaning of the words, and the understanding of God that we have through those songs. We pull closer to one another and we pull closer to God. Our worship is a really important experience. And it's interesting because in, I think growing up traditionally in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we, we're kind of a cerebral people. We like academics. We start universities. That's kind of the thing we do. Um, and so people worship in Adventism. If you grow up in it, you worship in the sermon. You wait to hear a good word. And in fact, we used a term for a really long time to talk about the musical worship we have, which is it's song service. And it was really that thing you got to get through in order to get to what church is really about, which is the sermon. And I never really felt like that was true. I mean, I enjoyed the worship that we had. And see, you have to understand where we come from. I grew up at La Sierra University Church. Donald Vaughn was our organist, who, who, who was like, he was like the best lead guitarist of your favorite band, but he did it on an organ. Like he was that rock star. He didn't have long hair or anything. And he wore a suit, you know, because he's church. And, but man, it was, this dude was amazing. And he would crank up the volume and you could tell, you know, you sing those three verses and then he modulates and then he hits that fourth verse. And there's like some extra knob that goes to 11 on his organ. And he just blows out that, and like everything's shaking. And my family, like we're, we're singers, right? So we're singing in four part harmony. And 
And you know, my dad's looking at me like, that's not the second tenor part. And I'm like, I'm nine. I can't read music. I don't know what's happening. But like, that's what, that's how we experience church and like worship. Woo, that was great. And we sit down and then somebody get up to preach and you'd be like, oh, well, that's not fun. That's not, and maybe you feel that way with me. Ashley's up here. Kayla's up here. You guys are singing, singing your hearts out. And then, they, oh, Tim's up. We'll get done because then we'll sing again. Um, that's why we put one at the end to keep you here, really. No, because some of you would be like, I'm out. No more singing. I don't need to hear that, dude. In fact, in La Mesa, when I worked in La Mesa in San Diego, uh, my first church, our music director would just leave. He was this really well-trained, I think we went to the Royal Academy of Music in London. He was incredibly well-trained. We had this kind of blended service. And he'd just leave. And finally, after a few months, I was like, hey, man, why, why do you leave during the sermon? And he's like, no, nah, you guys aren't going to say anything I haven't heard before. I got in my car and just listen to worship music the whole time. And then somebody texts me, and I come back. And we say, the final song. And I was like, oh, that's horribly offensive. <laughs> but he was British and he didn't care because it didn't feel like it. I think worship's really important and the way that we're present in our worship is an incredible gift to God. Not because he needs it, not because he needs it, but because he's asked for it. And so we give it back to him in powerful and important ways, right? In our whole countenance. And it's funny, like the volume thing, you know, we're obviously, you know, we play the kind of music we play. And sometimes there's, you know, people are like, is it too loud? Is it not too loud? There's this sweet spot, right? This sweet spot where it needs to be loud enough that you can't quite hear yourself completely, but not so loud that you can't hear anybody else. Because if you can't hear yourself, you're like, nah, it doesn't matter. And if you can hear everybody else, you go, ooh, I'm kind of self-conscious. Maybe they can hear me. So there's this perfect spot that we're all always working towards so that you can express yourself as loud as you can. And just so you know, we don't care what you sound like. When it all comes together, it sounds beautiful. But the person next to you may not be able to keep a tone. But just don't look at them. Like, it's okay. Just keep your eyes forward. I never knew this was the case until I sat next to my cousin, who, uh, like I said, we're a musical family, right? So we're all sitting together and we start singing this beautiful hymn and he starts singing. And I was like, what is that? And I love my cousin. He's a brilliant man. He's a land developer. He's very successful. I, like, I, I wish I could be like him now. But when we were nine and he started singing, I was like, hey, man, what's going on? And he's like, well, I'm singing. I love to sing. And I was like, do you? Do you love to sing? Because it doesn't sound like you're singing. It sounds like you're, I, I don't know what's coming out of your mouth. And he's like, what are you talking? He was so tone deaf. He didn't know he wasn't singing the right song. So I told him because I was nine. I was like, that's not how it goes. And he's like, maybe that's how it not goes for you. But I'm not singing to you. I'm singing to God. And I was like, oh, well done. <laughs> Excellent point. He was a theologian. He didn't even know it. So, so when you're here, like, lose yourself, right? Lose yourself in worship. It's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about looking stupid, man, because we all look stupid when we're singing. And that's great. Close your eyes if you don't want people to think you're looking stupid, because then they can't see you. I know that's not how it works. I love what First, Chron First Chronicles 16.23 says. It says, let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Each day proclaim the goodness that he saves. I go back, I go back in that Christmas story to shepherds on a hill and an angel showing up and being like, hey, do you know that Christ is born? And they're like, no, we don't know who that is. And he goes, hang on a minute. Come on, guys. And a billion angels start singing. And for a shepherd whose worldview is sheep, that had to be eye-opening. That had to be overwhelming to them, the whole earth. And then he says this, publish glorious deeds among the nations. 
Tell everyone about the amazing things he does, the amazing things that he has done. When I hear that word publish, and different texts use different words, but I love this word publish, because I think about our live stream. Do you know that we have more people watching our services than are in the room in any given week? It's over 2,000 people that watch every single week. <laughs> Praise God for that. And, and we, want, we want those of you who are watching to be engaged, to be deeply committed to this community, to, to be a place where you can help resource us so we can continue these amazing services. We want people to connect with Christ. And if they connect with Christ through us, that's part of our publishing. We love that. He continues on in 1625. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. He's to be feared above all gods, right? He wants everyone to know who God is. And remember, Jesus spoke of that non-tribal monotheistic God back in in Chronicles, they're still speaking of kind of this tribal God. So when they say he's to be feared above all gods, what he means is that over all the nations, he's to be feared. First Chronicles 16, 26, the God of other nations are mere idols, but the Lord made the heavens. While other things may pull for our attention, we are committed to making Jesus the first and last in our lives. 1627, honor and majesty surround him. Strength and joy fill his dwelling. Where God is, is where we want to be. That's where our worship inhabits strength for the living of life and joy to do it well. That's what it means to worship God and to give worship. I think it's also important that we give time. I think this is really important. As Seventh-day Adventists, we have this tradition of Sabbath. And man, I, it's a beautiful thing because it, it makes us recognize that time is important and that time is something that we can give to God. Time is this intangible thing, but we can kind of control what we do with our own time while we can't stop the onslaught of time. And if you don't think time is important, the next time you have a conversation with someone, turn off your phone and focus. Because, because we lose time. This thing has us lose time. If you got an iPhone, set your screen time so it'll tell you when to stop and see how many times you just say, ignore it because that's what we do. Mine, I, I think I'm supposed to be on, on Facebook for 15 minutes a day. And when it hits there, I'm like, you don't own me. You're not in charge of me, even though I set it up, right? These things suck away our time. They suck away our time from one another and they certainly suck our time away from God. Now we know you're gonna get on social media and that's fine. Nobody's saying it's evil. What I'm saying is be careful because it's oftentimes that we lose time we don't focus. And God is the God of time. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, for God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is this day of salvation. That's why we baptize Henry today, because it's the day of salvation. Right now, God is the God of time. He is the ruler of the clock. He's the ruler of the day, the hour, the minute, the second. It is always God's time. And when we remember that and we give that time back to God in the way that we use our time, in the way that we invest in other people, in the way that we show God's love and incarnate God's love through the time that we give people, it's powerful, it's important. Put that phone away and be present, fully present with the people around you. And I know, I, listen, I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. Some of us are really good at like, I'll put my phone away. My watch may be connected to my phone. So I'm cheating. Giving time. That's the way that we incarnate love in the world. That's the way we incarnate love of Christ to the people around us by giving real, honest, and, and focused time. Giving wealth, that's another way. This is important as well. 
It's the spiritual discipline of giving. And it's the sacrificial giving of what is close to us. Of course, you can give anywhere, lots of different places, and you should. But giving where you're blessed is a certain kind of giving. It's a certain kind of blessed. And, you know, we talk about the miracle of tithe, and you've heard me say this before. Dave Ramsey in his book, Financial Peace, says, I don't know whether or not, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, I don't know whether or not the miracle of tithe is that God somehow elongates your money and makes it go or holds off bills that you're supposed to pay. He says, but I know this, when you give money in the right place to where you know God wants it to be, it quells the desires of your heart. And it focuses you on what God wants for you. And so giving is important. With so much happening through this church, I'll just tell you, giving is important. And I don't preach giving sermons. All I do is stand up here and thank you guys for the amazing commitment that you have for this church, and we are so blessed by it. But giving is a spiritual discipline that shows how your heart is and where your heart is focused and how that incarnates in the world. It's a tangible expression. You know this. It's so easy for us to just, you know, give the least rather than to give the most we can, to give it last rather than give it first. But the spiritual discipline of giving tells us that God gets the first fruits of our blessing. And we live our lives in accordance to what those first fruits are. And so giving wealth is important. And some of you think that you're out because I use the word wealth. You're like, I'm not wealthy. He's not talking to me. That's not true. I'm talking about giving from your increase, giving from the blessing that God has given you, right? We all need to make these decisions and they're not all easy, I get it, right? But you gotta give as you're convicted because it is an incarnation of your heart and where your heart believes there is value. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says this, you must each decide in your own heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, so don't feel pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Listen, this is part of who we are, it's part of what we do. The economics of life talk about our heart. And these are decisions that are yours. But I believe that there's a peace that comes from it, which leads us to our next point. How are you giving peace? And the reason why this is important is because we don't all give peace. What kind of heart do you have? Do you have a heart that's full of peace and that's what it overflows? Do we create peace in people's lives or do you create something else in other people's lives? Are you a drama king or a drama queen or are you a purveyor of peace? Because we all know these people in our lives. There are people who suck so much time and energy and drama and when they call you, you think, man, I could, I could, I could send that to voicemail. Or they text you, you think, I'll get to it when it's time. Because you know that it will ratchet up the anxiety in your life. How are you doing that in other people's lives? Are you able to give them peace? Every time I hear that word peace, I cannot not think of Jesus in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. When the world is going crazy and chaos in the storm and the disciples are scared half to death, Jesus is asleep because that's how much a purveyor of peace he is. And when they finally go, listen, we need some peace. This is crazy. We're all going to die. They wake Jesus up and he gets up and he goes, hey, stop it. And the world goes, sorry about that. Didn't realize you were there. <laughs> Quieted down and Jesus went, you're welcome and went back to sleep. Are we purveyors of peace in people's lives? Do we give peace or do we ratchet up their anxiety? 
We all know who are the ones who do that in our lives, but how are we doing it in other people's lives? Because I don't know that we ask that often. I always want to be a purveyor of peace, and I know that I'm probably not. I have a lot of anxiety. I run around pretty hard. But I know I love it. I love it when I get a call from someone who brings peace into my life. Man, you guys all know Sam Lenore. He's a guy who does that for me. About every three months, we call one another up and say, hey, we need to get together. And so it's always late in the night. We show up at a Denny's somewhere, right? My wife calls it our mandate, which is fine. So we show up at Denny's and we talk for three or four hours. And I always walk away with a, a more peaceful heart. I don't know if he does, but I do. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says this, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you his peace at all times and in every situation. The Lord be with you all. I love this because we are reminded of where all this peace comes from. It comes from the heart of God and it overflows into us. And if it's in our heart, it overflows from us to other people as well. It is his peace, which looks different than our peace. Chad Versio, one of our board members, um, he said this this week and he served this church for four years. He's rolling off the board. That's a four-year stint. And I want to thank him so much. So if he's here and you see him, thank Chad. But he said this thing this week that just hit me. He said, you know, I think people are dry sponges. And I was like, that's not nice. Sponges are horrible. Dry sponge, you know the dry sponge you have underneath your sink? That's not nice. And he said, no, they're dry sponges, right? But when you pour that water into them, they become something different. They, the color comes back. They become useful again. What is overflowing in your heart to the dry sponges in your life? Those people change color. They become not only useful, but they clean other things as well. Everything incarnates, even the overflow of God. It becomes real in our lives. And this Christmas season, that's what we get to think about. And I know, like, I know that we could spend time on, on the narrative of the baby. We do that and you know that, but I want you to think about the narrative that's coming out of your heart into the world today. How you're making this world a more peaceful place, a more resourced place, a, a more worshipful place, a place that has time for one another. How are you doing that and what's in your heart? Because if you look over the narrative of your life and you see that those things aren't there, that's coming from you and what's inside of you. And God wants to change that. By accepting his overflow, we create a different kind of overflow from us. So how does the overflow become real in your life? That's the question for you today. Let's bow our heads. Lord of love, Lord of grace, how you have poured into us is overwhelming and it's powerful. It's amazing and it changes who we are. Lord, may you continue to overflow into us. May our worship be fully focused on you. May our time be free to love you and love one another. May, may the blessing that we've received in our life flow out from us to others, whether it's through this church or not. Lord, may the the grace of God and the peace of God be the peace that we share with one another. May all these things happen in your wonderful, your powerful, your holy, your precious, your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.